Father, you are good. There is no doubt about it. And we ask that you would show your goodness to us now, yet again, even now, as we open your word, by blessing it, by sending it forth in your power, with your spirit, and applying it way beyond our ears and our minds, down deep into our hearts and our souls. Lord, would you show us this goodness now? Father, I so enjoy coming into your presence like this. I pray that now your word would bring us even further into your presence. And that you, above all things, would be glorified and see fit to work salvation into the hearts of the lost and edification into the hearts of your saints. In Jesus' name we pray and ask. Amen. I invite you to take your Bibles and open them with me. Back to Luke chapter 23. Back to Luke's Gospel. Chapter 23 verse 26. I would caution you here. At the onset. To do your best to guard your minds this morning. From distraction in your hearts and minds from wandering. Sometimes we can think those are harmless things. When... Um, we start drifting off into different types of thinking or, or things we have to do. In reality, that's what I believe to be spiritual warfare. The enemy would do anything to distract you from God's Word, to distract you from the text, uh, even subtly so, to keep you busy with some other thought. And I, I say that this morning because this is perhaps one of the most, I don't know, moving passages, moving moments of the entire cross of Christ. There's a whole lot going on here, as we talked about last week. Uh, this is a, a passage, verses 26 through the end of the chapter, verse 56 of, of chapter 23. It's, it's packed full, it's loaded. And there's really no way that we can um, mine the depths of what's going on here, especially as we cross-reference the other Gospels and evangelists as they, as they write. But in these depths we still find this beautiful picture of the human depra depravity on, on clearest display, yet God's mercy shining through. And the enemy would do anything possible to keep our minds from really beholding that and to keep our hearts from really being engaged with that and moved and touched by that. So <clears throat> I would caution you, even if you need to take the next few minutes and pray, to steal your minds on the text this morning. Not only is it one that we need in regards for the unbeliever to be saved, but also as you and I battle against sin and the accusations of the enemy, today's passage could be one of the greatest weapons and tools in your arsenal. We find here a wonderful, glorious, beautiful picture of the heart of Christ shining forth in the midst of His suffering to save sinners. And I don't want you to miss it. Let's look in Luke chapter 23 verse 26. We'll read through the rest of the chapter as we did last week. But this week we're just going to focus on verses 39 through 43. But it'd be good for us to read the whole account again. So verse 26. Luke reports and he writes and he says, As they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, 
and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he turned and he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now by the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this was an innocent man. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid it in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. There's a lot going on here, as I said. A lot of characters in this crucifixion scene. Last week, let me just recap a little bit. Last week we highlighted that just as Jesus wasn't alone at his baptism, he was being baptized in the presence of the people, so too in his crucifixion. He's not alone. He's in the midst of all the people. He is the center character, but he's not the sole character. There's lots going on here. And in that scene, this setting, we again oscillate back and forth between this picture of the highest human sinfulness mixed and intermingled with the highest, clearest display of God's love and mercy and grace. And we begin with uh, Jesus issuing that warning in verse 28 to the daughters of Jerusalem, this mourning party that's been paid to follow behind him, lamenting and beating their breasts and mourning. That's literally what they're doing. And Jesus says, don't have pity on me, but weep for yourselves. Because my cross is temporary and my judgment is temporary, but if you, if you don't believe, your judgment is forever. And your judgment, if you don't follow me, will be worse than what I endure. It will be eternal. So there's this real clear sense that even on the road to the cross, Jesus looks at these people and He says, I don't want your pity, I want your repentance. I don't want you to look at me and feel sorry for the human brutality that I'm going to experience. There's much more going on here than just mere human brutality. The two other criminals crucified with him endure human brutality. I'm taking in the wrath of God so that you might escape the wrath of God. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. They do this when the wood is green. What will happen when it's dry? If they do this to an innocent man, what will happen to the guilty 
So even on the road to the cross, Jesus is calling these people who are following behind him, this crowd, to examine themselves, realize their guilt, and turn to what Christ is doing, what God is doing through Christ. As Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5, reconciling the world to himself. Then we move on through the text, and as after he's warned them, as, as he's being crucified, mockers arrive on the scene. Presumably, they've been walking with Jesus since the trial, mocking him the whole way. But Luke records it here in this portion, verse 35, the end of verse 34. They're fulfilling Psalm 22, Scripture, casting lots to divide his garments. They've stripped him. He's laid bare. He's humiliated. We've talked about last week, and I won't go into the details of the horrors of crucifixion. All four gospel accounts and evangelists simply say they crucified him. We wouldn't know much details uh, from the accounts that they give, but other extra-biblical documents from Rome especially tell us of the vast horrors of crucifixion. Christ is essentially found nailed to this hunk of wood, suffocating, heart failure, shock, dehydration, exhaustion, all of those sorts of things, exposed entirely to the elements. It's in that setting that they continue to mock him. They divide his, his garments. They're, they're essentially gambling over his clothes. Verse 35, people are standing by watching. Verse 48 of this chapter, Luke would call it, a spectacle. That's what's taking place here. Jesus is now physically and emotionally and mentally humiliated and under great spiritual anguish. The rulers are attributing the, the characteristics of Psalm 1. They're scoffing at Him. Blaspheming Him. This is what they're crying out. He saved others. Let Him save Himself. If you are the Christ, the Son of God, which we know you're not, if you're the chosen one, do something about it. Prove yourself to us. That is taunting. They cannot imagine in their minds the Messiah is suffering. And so they mock Him and His claim to be the Messiah. The soldiers in verse 36 also mock Him, giving Him sour wine, calling Him a king calling him to save himself. Even Pilate from a distance has mocked him, putting a sign on the top of his cross. This is the king of the Jews. And in all this mockery and humiliation and scoffing, what do we find Christ doing? Verse 34, the essence of the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's just a appalling, odd, ridiculous enraging and yet glorious scene where the weight of the issue in the moment shouldn't be lost on us. The weight of seeing our Lord, the Lord of glory as we highlighted last week, the, the one who's majestic in all ways and possesses all power and Hebrews 1 upholds the, the universe by the word of His power even sustains these guys nailing Him to the cross. We've come to know Him as such. And yet here for us, we seem strung up and mocked publicly. And His cry is for forgiveness. That shouldn't be lost on us. Well, as we come into verse 39, it only heightens this intermingling now of, again, still mockery and human depravity at its height. In God's mercy. It becomes much more closely related in today's text. Much more interactive. In one sense, we could, if we wanted to take a, a separate lesson out of this, and we'll try to at least highlight it throughout, we could highlight that there's two ways of coming to Christ, as depicted in verses 39 through 43. You and I will find ourselves in one of the two criminals strung up with Jesus. And we'll find the rest of the world and one of the two criminals strung up with Jesus. We respond to him in one of two ways. Luke is the only one who records this particular encounter. Matthew and Mark record the presence of the criminals. They, they call them robbers and thieves. But they don't record Jesus speaking to them or them speaking to Jesus. This is 
alone a Lucan account. And yet, Luke includes it to show us the very heart of Christ, even in the midst of His suffering. Now, because of what we know of crucifixion, we can somewhat safely conclude that these other criminals who are crucified with Jesus are not your common ordinary thieves or robbers or criminals. Likely, they're violent. Likely, they're lowest class. Likely, they're repeat offenders. It's hard to imagine, though not impossible, but hard to imagine and, and rare yet still to see common thieves crucified. Rome was brutal, but perhaps not that brutal. So the fact that we find these gentlemen with Jesus, especially in such a monumentous occasion like this, I mean, the crowd's attention is primarily on Jesus. And yet they want to go ahead and crucify two more criminals. That clues us in to the kind of people that Jesus is surrounded with. And remember we referenced reference last week Isaiah 53.12. He was numbered with the transgressors. These are the highest of the transgressors in the city. Let's have a crucifixion. And let's get the city on alert. And put everybody uh, on guard. And, and get everybody watching. And let's create a spectacle. Spectacle, and, and let's crucify everybody who's worthy of crucifixion. And they pick three. One of them's innocent, and two of them are absolutely guilty. These are the two worst criminals in the city in this moment. They're being crucified with Christ. The first one, we can call the reviler. Or the unrepentant. But we must pause there and consider the other gospel accounts. Matthew and Mark both say that these both criminals reviled Jesus and mocked him. But by Luke's account, or at least the portion he's including, at least one of them has had a change of heart. By verse 39, there's only one criminal railing at Jesus. He is selfish in his statement. He's mocking in his tone. And actually the word that's better used versus the word rail in your Bible might actually include it or at least the footnote is blaspheme. This criminal crucified with Christ is blaspheming Jesus. He starts with this mockery taunting of his Messiahship. Are you not the Christ? That's what you've claimed. That's what you teach. Are you not telling the truth? Were you a liar? Save yourself and us. We, we can conclude very safely that the emphasis is not the save yourself so much as it is us. This reviling criminal doesn't care much about Jesus. Only what Jesus has to offer him. And there we find many people caring very little about Jesus and more so about what Jesus has to offer them. Aren't you the Christ? Aren't you the Messiah? Aren't you the one who's cast out demons and healed the sick and, and taught in the temple and made all these outrageous claims about yourself? Being the, the Son of God, calling God your Father? Isn't that who you are? Then save me! Get us all down from this cross. Take care of these Roman soldiers. It's a rather selfish request. In fact, it reveals the kind of heart that this man has. The only way he's going to believe that Jesus is actually the Christ is if Jesus does what will make him not the Christ. If he comes down from the cross... In other words, this criminal has entirely projected on Jesus his own preferences and his own desires and his own understanding. He's trying to make Jesus who he wants him to be. Trying to make Jesus as he thinks he should be. And all for his own personal benefit. 
we can look at this criminal being crucified next to Christ and not only find many people, but we find how Christ is going to treat many people. None of the Gospels record Jesus addressing this guy. Are you not the Christ? Then prove it. Save yourself and save us. And what does that warrant from the mouth of Jesus? Nothing. So where does this criminal remain? Crucified. What's the lot that he deserves and gets? Death. And what will come after he dies? Death. Continued death. There is no intervention of Jesus for this man. He doesn't go so far as to correct him. He doesn't go so far to make any promise to him. He doesn't go so far to speak his name. He doesn't apparently even turn his attention towards him whatsoever. And take note, if you are one who is projecting onto Jesus your own preferences and your own desires, or if you're one coming to Christ only for the benefits that you might receive, then you will be treated the same way. Christ will not intervene on your half, behalf. He will not plead to the Father for you. He will not promise you life to come. He will not have an inheritance for you in your name. I'll take clear note because we are people prone to come to Christ only for the benefits of what He might do for us. True and saving faith cares more about Jesus than about self. The heart that's born again and the heart that's regenerated is the heart that is so devoted to Christ, not because He benefits us with inheritance and salvation and all those things, though they're good and glorious and great, the heart that's born again is devoted to Christ because it sees the glory and splendor and beauty and triumph of Jesus. The heart that's truly converted is given over to Christ because it finds nothing greater. The heart that only cares about Jesus for the potential benefits is falsely saved and falsely assured. Oh, and I fear that if I examine my own prayers, my own relationship to Christ, I might find more than I desire More examples of me coming to Jesus only for my wants and benefits. We are to be a people who praise Christ. We are to be a people who are found mostly exalting Him in our prayers and exalting Him in our obedience and exalting Him in our worship. Instead, we are prone by our sinful nature to Be a people who only worship because we think it puts us in favor and gets us blessings. Who only pray because we think it earns us something. Who only act in obedience because we think that will give us more blessings. And truth be told, that's not far off from the criminal in verse 39. I'll speak to Jesus. And I'll plead with Him even if it's in a taunting, mocking fashion. So long as I benefit something. I have entirely forsaken my notes. Let's move on. Verse 40, the second criminal begins to speak. We don't have his name, though early church records tried to assign him a name. Uh, There are three names that the early church tried to give to this gentleman, which means we don't have his name. He's simply known as the other criminal. And the New Testament writers don't diminish that fact. He is indeed a criminal. But he does something right in verse 40. Again, Matthew and Mark say he was at least reviling or mocking Jesus, at least in some degree for a little time. But by verse 40, he's had this change of heart and change of mind, and he rebukes. His counterpart. 
That's a strong word. Scripture uses it as a strong word and strong indication. It's um, energized, rising up, declaration towards this other guy. So all the strength he can muster as he's suffocating on the cross, he's spending it to rebuke the first criminal. And his rebuke reveals several significant things. First, the, the first thing it reveals goes back to the criminal, verse 39, the mocking criminal, the, the reviler, the unrepentant criminal. It reveals first that he is a man who doesn't fear God. For that's the rebuke of verse 40. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And the answer must be obviously no. You're a guy who doesn't fear God. You're ungodly. Look how you treat his son. You care nothing for God. You only care for yourself. Take warning. Take warning. You care nothing for God. You only care for yourself. But the second thing that we come to find in verse 40 from this criminal's rebuke of his counterpart is that for himself, at least to some slight degree, he recognizes the presence of God in Jesus. Now, I'm not going to attribute to this man um, profound theological acumen or anything like that. In fact, I think we can safely assume yet again, he's relatively uneducated. And at least in his prior life, hasn't had much regard for the law of God. Otherwise, he wouldn't be a criminal crucified. And he's a criminal by his own admission. Verse 41, but more on that later. But opposed to his fellow criminal, verse 39, he recognizes here is God under the same sentence of condemnation. This man who's, who's between us. This man who's being crucified. He's not like you or I. He's different. And he may be crucified like you and I. But there's something about him that is divine. And so his rebuke says. Do you not, do you not fear God? How can you say this? Perhaps his understanding of Jesus isn't that he's fully divine. Maybe it is. But he at least would say Jesus comes from God. The association there is unmistakable. Don't you fear God? This man so relates to God that if you mock him, you mock God. And then on top of that, in his rebuke, not only does he recognize this, this man, Jesus, is God, or the presence of God is with him. But what so many in the crowd fail to realize is that God is on a cross. In fact, there's a chance that this criminal might be the only one who realizes this in the moment. Even the disciples of Christ stand at a distance and, and watch. And even the one, as, we're, as, as is recorded in John's Gospel, John, who stands close by, all of them require at least some degree of help from Christ to believe after the resurrection. They spend their time in fear and hiding after Christ's death, wondering what's next and what's going to happen. It's not really until the resurrection and Christ appears to them that they begin to believe beyond doubt. But this criminal might be the only one in the moment who has no doubt. This is God receiving the same sentence of condemnation for, for us, or as us. In verse 41, we go on to find more about the heart of this second criminal. He says, We indeed justly we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. Lesson number one about coming to Christ. Anybody who is truly going to be saved must be humble and confess their sin. And own their responsibility and their guilt. 
The first criminal in verse 39 has no inclination that he owns up to his guilt. He's seeking to escape the consequences. Get me out of this mess. The second criminal in verse 41 says, I'm justly here crucified. I'm getting what I deserve. And as he turns to Jesus here in a moment and pleads with Jesus, he doesn't plead for escape from his consequences. He pleads for something else. In other words, this man has realized, I am absolutely justly condemned. I am guilty. And I'm receiving my due reward and I deserve to be here. And any heart that is truly saved says with this man, I agree about me. I'm justly condemned. I'm guilty. I deserve punishment for my deeds. The heart that's being saved is a heart that owns the responsibility of its guilt. If you're coming to Christ, it requires the most humility you can muster. Oh, God most certainly opposes the proud. Verse 39 is that example. But he shows grace to the humble. And the second criminal is that example. This man doesn't try to clean himself up before Christ. He doesn't try to lessen his deeds or justify his actions in any way. He just declares in front of this whole crowd, in front of Christ himself, in front of the Roman soldiers, anyone who can hear him rebuking the guy on the other side of Jesus, I deserve to be here. They didn't get my punishment wrong. They caught me. I'm guilty. And this is right. This is justice. Oh, the heart that would come to God in salvation must be like this man's heart. Next, in verse 41, as he's rebuking this guy, he reveals yet another serious truth. But this man has done nothing wrong. He has understood something nobody in that crowd understood except for the disciples. Jesus is innocent. I deserve to be here, but he doesn't. And that's how the, the structure of the verse is. That's the language of the verse. It's uh, in contrast to himself and, and to the other criminal. We indeed justly, we're receiving the due word, reward of our deeds, but in contrast, this guy hadn't done anything wrong. He's here unjustly. He's an innocent man. Sometimes the word innocent would be used for the word righteous. And perhaps we could take a little bit of liberty and plug it in there. This man is righteous. He's innocent. He's done nothing to deserve this punishment. Two things are clear. He knows he deserves to be there and he knows Jesus doesn't deserve to be there. And so thus far, this man has admitted his own guilt. He has admitted Christ's divinity and he has admitted Christ's innocence. And that it is God who is dying as an innocent man. What a rebuke. What a rebuke to correct his counterpart. It reveals a heart that is sincere. Well, verse 42, stick with me, please. He turns his attention now to our Lord Jesus. And he addresses him. Something I didn't say earlier, but I should say. It takes an incredible amount of effort and energy and oxygen when you're on the cross to speak. And this man is not wasting his words. He looks at Jesus and he says, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Two more things are revealed in verse 42. It's one, Jesus is a king who has a kingdom. 
There's something about this man. The presence of God is with him. And I believe he is a king. And he's going to his kingdom. And second, this man realizes there is an afterlife. This cross is temporary. And I need to take care of my eternity now. Jesus warns over and over again throughout the Gospels. He's just warned this following uh, crowd of weeping women. You should be ready for the afterlife. For the judgment that's coming. It's only this criminal in verse 42 who prepares himself. And he turns to Jesus and he says, when you come into your kingdom as king, remember me. As far as we know, this man has just exhausted all that he knows about Jesus. And he most likely doesn't realize all that he has said, at least its significance and weight. But what is it that stirs the heart of Christ towards this criminal? It's sincerity. It's what David claimed in Psalm 51, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. Why does this criminal get a response from Jesus as we're about to look at verse 43? Because he has a broken and contrite heart before Christ. You need to realize something about this man in verse 42. He is actually pleading with Jesus for salvation while Jesus is on the cross. But understand this, that plea for Jesus to save him, it's not rooted in good works, is it? That plea for Jesus to save him isn't even rooted in an extraordinary knowledge of Jesus. He doesn't know all that Jesus has been teaching as far as we can tell. He's been living a life of crime. And the time for this criminal, the time for moral reform, or to clean himself up with good works, that time has passed. It has come and it's gone. His plea is simply rooted in faith. That Jesus will have mercy on him. And with that faith, he he entrusts his entire eternity into Jesus' hands. And that seems to be enough for him. And it's at that point in the cross. Where this scandal of divine grace. Begins to take true shape and true form. As Jesus interacts with this admittedly condemned criminal. For this man who turns to Christ in verse 42 and says, remember me. He has no option to clean himself up before Jesus. He's at his most vulnerable, hideous, horrific place in life. He's at his most humiliated moment. So there's no option for moral reform. There's no option for doing good works. There's no option for earning Jesus uh, in His favor. There's not even perfect theology. In fact, there is very little understanding comparatively. And yet, what does Jesus say? Forgiven. And if that is not the grace of the cross, then I don't know what is. Here is a presumably hardened criminal who isn't a typical churchgoer, who hasn't been raised following the Jewish faith very well, at least, who hasn't presumably been following after Christ. Here's the typical outsider that nobody thought God would ever care a lick about. He's the lawbreaker. They're mourning for Jesus, not for that criminal. Everybody knows he's getting what he deserves. He's the guy that nobody thinks would walk into a church service and worship God. 
or be saved. He doesn't know the lingo. He doesn't know how to behave. He doesn't have a chance to prove his faith. And yet, it is enough for Christ. Those who are saved are not the ones who have it all together, who can prove themselves before God, who dress up in their Sunday best, who have all the, the theological terms down pat in their mind and in their heart, or read the best Christian books, or whatever this, that, or, or whatever it is you want to plug into the blank. Those are not the people who are saved. It's the people who come to Christ in sincere faith with a broken, humble, contrite heart, and who plead with Jesus out of honesty that find forgiveness. You and I can play the game all we want to play, we can hold on to all that we've done for years and years and years and whatever. None of that earns us favor before God. Only your heart that is humbled and responsible and exercises trust in Jesus gets the response. And the response in verse 43 is glorious. And it's worth you bearing with me as we go over time this morning. Jesus turns to him. And take note of the crucifixion story. Jesus speaks to only two people while he's on the cross. He spoke to the mourners before the cross. After he's nailed and strung up, there's two people he speaks to. One is the heavenly father and two is this criminal. And he looks at him and he says, truly. Anytime Jesus has used that word in the Gospels, it's a word of emphasis. It's emphatic. It's important. It's a declaration. It's an absolute guarantee. Take it to the bank. Certainty. Truly. Without any doubt. You need not worry. You need not have a shadow of doubt in your heart. Truly. And then this royal proclamation, I say to you, I, the Son of God, <laughs> the Lord of glory, the Savior of the world, I say to you, you condemned criminal that nobody wants, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. With absolute immediacy. And absolute certainty. Without delay. With no hindrances. Your boarding pass hasn't been lost. Your confirmation ticket isn't incorrect. Today. Paradise is yours. All of a sudden. This criminal. Who cries out to Christ finds that his death and his suffering is very, very temporary. It's a deathbed confession. A deathbed salvation. And he enters into eternal bliss and perfect joy today. What's more striking to me about verse 43 is that Jesus gives the personal answer to him, you, you will be with me. This criminal that nobody wants that justly is condemned, who is the worst of the worst apparently in Jerusalem at the time, has now been brought into eternal relationship with Jesus. Oh, Christ isn't afraid to associate with the worst of the worst. You will be with me in paradise. Where I am, you're going to be. What I'm doing, you're going to be doing. Which means in just this one declaration, Christ is already exercising the very 
mission and purpose and result of what he's there dying for. He dies, he's strung up on the cross to be able to say that very statement to that criminal. In just a few moments, he'll look up and say, it is finished. And that criminal's sins will have been atoned for. Christ looks over at this criminal, looks him in the eye, and says, yes, I will take your punishment. Yes, I will take your wrath. Even in the last seconds of the cross, add more punishment, add more sin, add more wrath, so that you might be forgiven. I'll take your place. So that when you and I breathe our last on this cross, we'll be together in paradise. This church is the very heartbeat of Jesus' crucifixion. It's what Christ is dying for. It's what He was born for. It's what He lived for. This declaration of grace, abundant, lavished, unharnessed, unhindered grace and mercy is the very reason He's suffering Right next to that criminal. And isn't it telling for us. That in God's divine economy. He would include this very account. Where this wicked individual that you and I would never associate with. Is shown the grace and mercy of God. Our Lord so desires to save sinners. That even while he's suffering, he's guaranteeing salvation. Even while he's strung up. Even while his blood is leaving. Even while his heart is failing. Even while he's drinking in the full cup of the wrath of God. He cares about this man's eternity. You come to me in sincere and humble faith. And salvation is immediately yours. Christ wastes no time with this man. He intervenes for him and intervenes for him eternally. And this man will in a few hours have his legs broken so that he'll die quicker before the Sabbath. And his eyes will shut and his body will give way. He'll quit breathing. His heart will stop. And he'll open his eyes with Christ. This passage is one of the jewels of the crucifixion narrative. Because it tells us two things. It tells us that the worst of the worst sinner can be saved. And they can be saved any moment. And they can be saved before they understand anything. They can be saved before they do anything. They can be saved before they reform their lives. If they simply come to Christ in faith, trusting that He is the God on the cross, in their place, the King who can bring them with His own authority into their kingdom. If they place their faith in Him, they can be saved. That gives you and I great confidence in evangelism. But great warning not to neglect anybody. Even the criminal. Secondly, it tells us as believers that when the enemy lobs his accusations of shame and regret and guilt towards us, we can say that we're just as this criminal. Christ has intervened on our, ha- on our behalf. And when doubt begins to assail in our minds that you know, maybe, just maybe God doesn't love us. Well, doesn't this story speak contrary to that? Christ so desires to forgive and so desires to save and so desires to pardon that He does it while on the cross to the most unlikely of characters. And so when the enemy lobs his accusations at you and at I, we can say, look how much God wants to save me His promise is sure. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The proof is at the cross. There's so much more that could be said, but I hope you will at least begin to contemplate the truths of this text in light of those two realities. This is your tool and your arsenal. 
to believe upon the love and grace of God through Christ, but also your motivation to evangelize nobody is beyond the saving grace of Christ. Father, your word is rich beyond all measure. And as we said last week, no human words are adequate to convey the beauty and truth and power of the cross. So we must trust your spirit and trust you to take the wonderful message of your crucifixion and apply it to our lives, to our hearts and our minds. Oh, in your grace, would you let us behold the wonder of this passage? For it is far greater and far more wonderful than even what we've said today. I thank you that you saved this criminal, that he is my brother, and one day I will see him. Because truth be told, I see myself in him. Justly sinful, deserving punishment, and yet able to cry to you and be saved. You didn't take him down from the cross that day. But you welcomed him into your kingdom as you said you would. I think of Paul's statement, I am the chief of sinners and I am saved so that God's mercy might be shown to everyone that if if I can be saved, anyone can be saved. I look at this criminal and I think if he can be saved where I, I see myself in him, if he can be saved, I can be saved. You are A gracious God, you are many things and we should attribute many things to you. You're divine, you're holy, you're glorious, you're the son of God. But we must declare that you are the savior. It is so bound up in who you are and what you do. You are our savior. And we praise you and we thank you. In your name, Jesus. Amen.